0: So, the first reading is 2 Sam, chapter 7, 1 to 16, and I'm going to read that. And then Emma's going to read from us from 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13. So, this is 2 Samuel, chapter 7, 1 to 16. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. "'Nathan replied to the king, "'Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, "'for the Lord is with you.' But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, "'Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. "'Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought "'the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling.' Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed him from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever.
1: So 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we are going to be reading from verses 1 through 13. Then you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus' No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you great insight, or oh, sorry, will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain a salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself.
2: You know, some parts in life, it seems like there's no way out. Like a sheep trapped in a maze, designed by wolves. And you know that if you're ever in that situation, there are always two doors to choose from. And through the first door, oh, it's easy to get through that door and on the other side, waiting for you, all the nummiest treats you can imagine. Fanta, Doritos, LMP, Burger Rings, Coke Zero. But you know what, there's also another door, not the Burger Ring door, not the Fanta door, another door that's harder to get through. Guess what's on the other side? Anyone want to take a guess? Vegetables? Mm, no. Mm, not vegetables. No. Jesus? You would think Jesus. I thought Jesus the first time I, I, I come across that door. It's not Jesus. It's another door. And guess what's on the other side of that door? Jesus. Jesus, yeah, Jesus. It's tricky like that, Jesus. So let us pray to Jesus, please, to make it a bit easier to get through those doors and to find you and your bounty of delicious confectionery. Thank you, Selena. Take it away.
3: That's our um, that's our new revamped life series. (laughs) I think it's a big improvement, don't you? Much clearer than when Sam was running it. (laughs) It's actually a movie called uh, The Hunt for the Water People, which is sort of New Zealand's answer to The Castle. Has anybody here never actually seen it? Put up your hand. You have got to watch that movie. It is absolutely sensational. It's not as good as the castle, but that's kind of New Zealand all over. Really amazing, just not as good as Australia. It's just kind of the way it is. (laughs) And every time I find myself watching that clip, which I must have watched it 30 times in the last week. I think I could grow as a preacher watching that. I find myself wondering, is that really what people think of Jesus? Is that really what people think Christianity is actually like? Because you get the impression that Christianity is meant to be comforting nonsense, don't you? It's nonsense. Christianity makes absolutely no sense at all, but it's vaguely comforting. It's kind of nice to have around the time like a funeral. And Jesus is this slightly odd, tricky guy. He's not straightforward. He's not obvious. He's the kind of guy who's hidden behind two doors. And if that's what Christianity and Jesus is actually like, I think I'd rather go without, you know? But thankfully today, we're going to see the real Jesus is actually much easier to get our heads around. We're in the middle of three weeks getting excited about the building that we all went and visited yesterday. But actually what we're really excited about is our passions as a church. What drives us? What makes us tick? Because let's be honest, if it doesn't fit in with that, what is the point of a building? What's the use of a building that's not actually helping us with the things we're most passionate about? And so last week, we looked at the kind of people that God wants us to be, which we saw as a a people who who pass the gospel on to the next generation and who are willing to actually suffer as we do it. And we looked at how a building could help with that. Today, we're looking at what we want for our city. What do we want for Newy and Lake Mac? for our neighbours, for our friends? And look, what we want for them is actually all tied up with Jesus. So have a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're like, oh, I have to wake up. Someone can see me if I fall asleep now. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. So Paul starts off and he says to Timothy, remember Jesus, which immediately sounds like kind of a funny thing to say, right? Because is Timothy really that likely to forget Jesus? Is Timothy really that, that's okay, you can go to sleep again now. Is Timothy really that forgetful? No, Paul is not afraid that Timothy's going to forget who Jesus is. What he's saying is, focus on Jesus, Dwell on Jesus. Have Jesus at the very front of your mind. Speak about him and preach about him. Remember him. So what is it that we're supposed to remember? Well, look there in verse 8. There's three things. Remember that Jesus is the Christ, that he's raised from the dead, and he's descended from David. Three huge things to remember about Jesus that are all actually very much on one theme. Firstly, remember that Jesus is the Christ. He's the king, because that's all the word Christ means. It just means someone who's been anointed as a king. But there was actually one king that Israel had been looking for for centuries. And he was a particular descendant of David. Now, we saw it in our reading earlier. When David became king around about 1000 BC, he decided that he was going to build God a house, a temple. And in a dream, God said back to David, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who'll build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David wanted to build God a house, meaning a temple, but God promises to build David a house, meaning a dynasty. When David dies, God's going to raise up one of his own flesh and blood. And verse 12, God's going to establish his kingdom. In fact, verse 13, God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what God's promising here is a king like there has never been. This is a king who his rule has no scope in time. He rules forever. And it has no scope in terms of geography He rules everywhere. And so throughout the centuries, the Jews were longing, they were waiting for who this king would be. And of course, at first, it looked like Solomon would be a really good bet. So Solomon ruled the nations around him. He even built God's house. He built a temple. And then it all fell apart. Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, and he ended up worshipping idols. And the nail in the coffin literally was that Solomon died. Solomon couldn't be this king that God promised, Because he died. His kingdom didn't endure. And in fact, every single king that followed on all the way through the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they all sinned and they all died. So they were all sons of David, but none of them was the son of David. Until a thousand years later, we reached this guy, Jesus. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of David. It's the town David came from. And his father Joseph came from David's family. So Jesus was David's own flesh and blood. He hit the bill, in, he fit the bill in terms of being a son of David. But what made him the son of David is that God raised him from the dead. Which means that Jesus can never die. He has an eternal reign. And so do you see what Paul's saying there in 2 Timothy 2? He's saying, remember Jesus the Christ, who's been raised from the dead, descended from David. He's saying, he's the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who owns the entire universe. Of course, that's a brilliant thing to remember as we go about buying a building, isn't it? We may pay for the building. You may pay for the building. But it will never belong to any of us. It'll be Jesus' building. Because Jesus owns the whole world. And look, I really do believe this. I really do believe, even as a senior pastor, that this building is not mine. And the BAC, the, the building committee, we've been working at this for, I guess, two years. Actually, even longer than that, four years now. We've put in literally thousands and thousands of hours combined. None of them believe that the building is theirs. That's going to be really helpful when we don't get our own way, isn't it? Because I know there are going to be things about the building that are not what I would have chosen. There'll be things about it that I'll wish were slightly different. My needs won't quite be met. My priorities won't necessarily get, um, get prioritised. I'm going to have to remind myself in that moment, it's not my building. It's Jesus' building. He's the Christ, descended from David, raised from the dead, he owns everything. And look, if you've been a Christian for a while, everything there that David says makes sense. you probably read 2 Samuel 7 a dozen times. But at the end of verse 8, Paul says something that that's well, just a little bit odd. Have a look in verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descendant of David. This is my gospel. In other words, if you ask me what my message is, this is the message that I tell everyone. This is my gospel. Jesus is the king. Now, does that surprise you a little bit? Does Paul maybe leave something out that you would have put in? So just say a friend asks you, what's all this Christianity business about? And you finally get the chance to tell them about Christianity. What information would you always make sure you'd include? Jesus' death, right? We always want to make sure. We say Jesus died in your place. Jesus paid for your sins. You don't have to be good to go to heaven. You've just got to trust in Jesus' death. Whenever we talk to people about Christianity, we always want to ram Jesus' death in there, which of course is right. The gospel is about Jesus' death. Remember, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians and a couple of weeks ago, Paul said to the Corinthians, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's got to be absolutely right. Paul believes that Jesus dying on the cross is the gospel. So why does he preach a different gospel here? Why leave out Jesus' death and focus on his resurrection and rule? Well, it's because Jesus' resurrection and rule is the result of his death. Jesus' resurrection and rule is the reward for his death. Because Jesus was different to every other son of David. Every other son of David was selfish and sinful, and they all died. But here's Jesus, who for his entire life was perfectly obedient. And he sacrificed himself for his enemies, because that's what God wanted him to do. And because he was perfect and obedient, God raised him from the dead and he raised him to glory. He's raised Jesus to majesty and he's ruling right now. And Paul says, that is my gospel, the majesty of Jesus, the rule of this risen king. I want everyone to know that Jesus is worthy. And look, if you're visiting our church, this is what we want you to know about us. The building thing, let it pass you by. But if you, you've come for a, on a brilliant few weeks to find out what really makes us tick and what really makes us tick as a church is we want everyone to know that Jesus is the king. You see, Christians don't just tell people about Jesus because we love them. We tell people about Jesus because we love him. Because we look out at Newey and Lake Mac. And we see that Jesus isn't actually worshipped the way he deserves to be worshipped. And we hate that fact. Jesus isn't loved and thanked the way he deserves to be. People don't thank Jesus for dying in their place and we hate that fact. People don't listen to Jesus and they don't adore him and they don't sing to him and we hate that. People, people treat Jesus like the way he's described in that Wilder People movie. Just kind of like he's He's irrelevant and he's unimportant, and he's trivial, and we hate that. We're jealous for Jesus' glory. It's funny, jealousy is usually a really negative emotion, isn't it? Jealousy is the green-eyed monster. It makes people do terrible things because jealousy is when I want for myself what is rightfully yours. Funny that God is a jealous God. Did you know that? God says that he is the jealous God seven times in the Bible. In Exodus 34, he says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Even God's name is jealous. Because, you see, worship is rightfully God's. Adoration is God's by right, and he refuses to share it with anyone else. God's jealousy is actually a right jealousy. And that's the jealousy we feel for Jesus. It's the jealousy Paul felt for Jesus. When Paul went to Athens and he looked around and he saw all these idols and people worshipping other gods, he was angry. It says literally, he burned inside his guts. That's how Paul felt when he saw Jesus not being treated the way he deserves to be treated. He wanted Jesus to be treated as the true king. He deserves to be treated as the true king. And I don't know about you, but I kind of want to feel a little bit more of Paul's anger about this. I want to look out at Nui and Lake Mac and feel angry that Jesus isn't adored. I want to feel more of the injustice of how Jesus is mistreated. I want my heart to ache for Jesus' lost glory. That would be good for me. But at the same time, I really do want people to know it for their sake. You see, the people in this city are living under the most dangerous delusion you can ever have. They think they're their own kings. No one tells me what to do. I'm in charge of my own life. And no one can tell me how to live. No one can tell me what to do with my body. No one can tell me who I am. No one can tell me what to do with my time or my money. I'm in charge of my own life. But when Jesus comes back, that lie is going to be exposed in the most tragic way imaginable. As Jesus judges people and sends them to hell. And so it's desperate. It's desperate because we're not just talking about hypothetical people, are we? We're talking about the people we love. We're talking about our families talking about our workmates, talking about our neighbours, the people we wave to every morning and every night who are living in the most reckless danger imaginable. It's desperate that they hear, isn't it? The one thing that describes our church is remember that Jesus is the Christ. He's raised from the dead. He's descended from David. This is our gospel. And you know the thing, We ought to be really confident as we tell people about it. We should actually expect that our friends are going to be saved because God's word is not chained. So have a look at what he says next in verse 9. He says, This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. See, there's this great irony in Paul's life as he writes this letter to Timothy. The irony is, Paul serves the most powerful person in the universe. Raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand, Paul is the servant and the messenger of the most powerful person in the universe, and yet he himself is chained like a criminal. He himself is writing from a prison cell. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? And yet look what Paul says in verse 9. He says, "But God's word is not chained. You can chain me, tie me down in one place, but you can't stop God's word from going out." Again, that's just a huge comfort for us, isn't it? So you say something unexpected happens, and it turns out we don't get this building. It's pretty unlikely, you know we've got the right contracts in place, but imagine somehow this deal fell through. be tragedy, wouldn't it? The end of the world. No, not really, because the gospel can't be chained. The gospel's not chained to a building. It'll still go out. I was in Queensland this week, speaking to a bunch of church pastors, uh, doing a conference for a bunch of church pastors, and you might know that the Queensland Presbyterian Church has just gone into a receivership. So they had an aged care wing, and it's essentially sunk the entire denomination. They're all in receivership. And it's hard to know the future of the Queensland Presbyterian Church but there is a chance that they will lose the lot. Lose their buildings, lose their, all of their bank accounts, they'll lose the lot. There's a chance of that. And I sat in a room with 30 of their pastors, and I tell you what, it was inspiring. Because they were undaunted. They trusted Jesus. No matter what happens, the gospel is going to keep going out. We might lose our building, but that's okay. The gospel will keep going out. It was inspiring. Even if by some chance we did lose this building, God's word's gone out from our church for the last 30 years and it's gone out around the world for the last 2,000 years. So we can have confidence. God's word's not changed. In fact, look in verse 9. Paul says, God has his elect. So look in verse 9. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And if you're exploring Christianity, that word elect might be a new idea for you. It's kind of like when we have an election as a nation, that's when we choose our government. That's what elect means. It means chosen. The reason God's word isn't chained is that God has chosen who his people are going to be. He actually chose them before the creation of the world. So Ephesians chapter 1, up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You see, before God even created the world, before you were born, before any of us were born, God chose a people who would be holy. And blameless in his sight. And then the next word that gets used as a word that people often really struggle with is the word predestined. He destined people ahead of time. And verse 5 there, he did it because he loves us. See, it's funny, sometimes as we're trying to get our head around this idea of election or predestination or being chosen, it can feel like a cold in clinical ideas almost like a a kind of a conveyor belt. We're running along and God just flicks some people some way and some people the other and that there's no actual emotion for God in it. But that's not it at all. Predestination, election is all about God's love because the simple fact is what I deserve is hell. What I deserve is judgment. Leave me to my own devices and I will never come to God. But in his love, God predestined me before I'd done anything good or bad. In his love, God chose me. And then by the Holy Spirit, he called me when the message came. The Holy Spirit called me and he gave me the faith to believe. At that point, you might be thinking to yourself, but does that mean then that I didn't choose God? If God chose me first, did I really actually choose him at all? And the answer is, of course you did. You can remember if you chose God, if you became a Christian, you can remember making the choice, can't you? When I became a Christian, it was 1989, I chose to investigate. And I weighed up all the options and I looked at the evidence and I especially actually looked at other Christians' lives and I made the choice that I believe in this. I did all of that. It's just that God chose me first. Look how Luke describes what happened in Antioch. Paul has been preaching the gospel. And when the Gentiles heard the message, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Do you see how both of those two ideas are together? God appointed people for eternal life. And then they heard the message. They heard that Jesus was the Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, and they were glad. And they honoured the word of the Lord and they believed. Of course we choose God. But he chose us first, even before he made the world. Now you know what this means? It means I'm confident as we go and speak to the people in Newey and Lake Mac. I'm supremely confident. Because I know that God has his elect in this city. I know there are people out there in New Mac, that God chose to be his before he even created the world. He has already appointed them for eternal life. All we have to do is find them. And that's the fun bit. We get to go out and we get to talk to people and we get to tell them that Jesus is the Christ. And those people that God has chosen will actually honor the word of God and believe. Now, we don't know who they are yet. It's not like you can tell the elect because they're different to anyone else. It's not like you can tell the elect because they're the ones who are nicer people and they're living better lives. No, God calls people from all walks of life. But we'll just go out and we'll tell as many people as we can and we'll see what God does. I feel about Newcastle and Lake Mac the way Paul felt about Corinth. Have a look in Acts 18. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, when Jesus says he has many people in Corinth, does he mean many Christians? No, because Paul's only just arrived in Corinth at this point. At this point, there are almost no Christians in Corinth. But Jesus says, I have many people in this city. They just didn't know it themselves yet. They hadn't heard the gospel from Paul's lips yet. They weren't believers yet. But Jesus says, they're still my people. And knowing that meant that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. That's how we feel about New year and Lake Mac, isn't it? Jesus has his people here. We've just got to go and find them. We're going to go and talk to our friends and we're going to keep praying for them and we keep inviting them along to life. And if God's chosen them in the power of the Holy Spirit, they'll come. And again, here's the thing. We don't actually need a building to do any of this, do we? We've been doing this for 30 years as a church. And actually, we are already spread all over the city. You want to see something really encouraging? Here's a map. I think you're about to see kind of an animation of... Here's a map of all of Nui and Lake Mac with all of our people marked on it. That's where you live. You're one of those blue dots. Isn't it nice that you can be reduced down to a blue dot on a page? But isn't it crazy? We actually live all over the city, right from Fern Bay in the north, all the way down to Lake Manmora in the south. And as families and as people, we're involved with other families and people all over the city. We're involved in their lives and we're praying for them. And look, that's something that a building is never actually going to change, is it? The suburbs that we live in and the people that we love and the people we're talking to, none of that's going to change because we get a building. It's just that the building will make it easier for us to reach them. This, this map that um, I think you can kind of see on the screen, this map is all of the people who live in a 20-minute Drive, within 20 minutes drive from the building on a Sunday Everyone who lives within 20 minutes is in kind of that shaded area And you can see basically It's the entire, the entire city Right from the very top of Newey Right into the beach at the east Right out to Holmesville in the west Right down to Toronto in the southwest To Belmont in the southeast It's About 300,000 people Within 20 minutes drive of that building we really, it's like Mitch said earlier, we really could not have come up with a better place to reach New and Lake Mac from. It's the most incredible gift from God for them, not us. We'll still be able to talk to our friends. We'll still be able to talk to our neighbors and our suburbs. It's just that they can all find the building and reach it. And look, to reach the city really is worth the cost, isn't it? Just have a look at what Paul says from verse 8 again. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I find verse 10 incredibly inspiring and at the same time, Really, really, really challenging. See, Paul weighs up two things. On the one hand, he weighs up everything he has to endure, which was a lot. If you know anything about Paul's life, we're talking persecution from the Jews, hunger and starvation, shipwrecks, being beaten, being chased, being thrown out of cities, the travel, being chucked in jail, riding from jail. He's not sure what's going to happen with even his own life and death. And Paul weighs up all of that on the one hand, And then he also, in the other hand, weighs up the salvation of the elect and their eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And he says, no contest. It's not even a contest. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's worth it, is what he says. For the salvation of God's elect, it's worth it, no matter what it is. It was worth the blood of God's own son. That's how worth it God thinks it is. He sent his only son. And The same's true for us, isn't it? I said last week, I could not ask you to give to a building that I didn't personally believe in myself. I couldn't, I couldn't give to it myself if I really didn't believe that this building would help people become Christians. I think it will. I think in the decades to come, hundreds of people, thousands of people are going to become Christians in that building. Because it will locate us in community. People will be able to drive past and they will see us there. I loved something that someone told me last week. Just over the road from where the church is, there's an oval where kids play soccer every weekend. If you came yesterday, you probably saw them. They were parked in your spot. And what happens is they all drive down the road looking for a park And they turn right into our street and they come to our driveway and they do a Yui and they turn around and park. Imagine if we opened the gate on a Saturday morning. Imagine if we said, come, park inside here for free. Imagine if we said, here, have a coffee on us to drink while you're walking over to the Oval. Imagine if those people then became curious enough to investigate. What a crazy bunch of people that they open their building and they give us coffee for nothing. Just across the road from where our building is, there's a whole bunch of bushland that actually is about to have 66 new houses being built on it. 66 new families right on our doorstep. Imagine that. Imagine all the kids who are going to come to Wave there every January and hear about the gospel. Imagine the Wave Cafe that's not in a hot, grimy tent out the front, but is actually in air-conditioned comfort in the foyer that we build around the outside of it. So the kids are outside in 40 degrees, you're sitting inside sipping a latte. It's kind of worth it, isn't it? Imagine the hundreds and hundreds of youth on a Friday night, coming and hearing about Jesus, and not just for the next five years, the next 50 years, the next 100 years. It's worth twice what we're paying. That's worth it, isn't it? It's worth the inconvenience. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth some of us traveling a little bit further to go to church. And it's worth really digging deeply into your pockets for this one. Last week I shared with you, uh, well, I think Sam did with you guys, but I shared with the rest of church how Emma and I are planning to give and how much we're planning to give. And if you want, you can go back and listen to the talk. For Emma and I, the figure is 25,000. And we also asked our senior staff, so that's non-MTSs, to nominate how much they'll give. And I found out on Friday, and it literally brought a tear to my eye. Because it's such an incredibly sacrificial amount. That's such a 2 Timothy 2 verse 10 kind of amount. The 13 families on our senior staff have together pledged more than $235,000. That's an average of $18,000 per family. Now, you know what's so encouraging about that? Some of those families are still right at the beginning of their family life. They're right at the beginning of mortgages. They're right at the beginning of having kids. Money's tight. They've got so many demands on their finances. But they really get to Timothy 2 verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you that you have raised Jesus from the dead. This one who died for our sins, died in our place, taking our punishment. We praise you that you've rewarded him with glory forever. And we praise you that this is our message to the world, We pray that people will honor him and we pray that in our own hearts you'll make us angry and frustrated and upset that he doesn't get the glory he deserves. We pray that we'll tell people about Jesus for Jesus' sake and also for theirs. Please give us a desperate urgency to tell the people who we love. Help us to overcome the awkwardness, the pain for their sake. Indeed, we pray that we would be willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. We pray that our hearts would so overflow with love for them that the cost to ourselves would diminish. And we pray that you would use this building. We know it's not the point of the kingdom, but we pray that it would be a tool for the kingdom. We pray for the 66 new families that at some point in the next few years will move in across the road. We pray for those people who go to soccer there. We pray for the people who come to wave. We pray for the kids who will come through youth. We pray that people will become Christians in every single room in that building, in the auditorium, in the kids' center, in the foyer that we eventually build, out in the oval, in the bush, even in the toilets. We pray that you would bring people to Christ there because he truly deserves it. Amen.